Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Podcast. Trinity Grace is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. We have two services on Sunday mornings, 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. at General Seminary in the Chapel of the Good Shepherd. We would love for you to join us. For more information, go to tgcdowntown.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the word of the Lord. Loving God, we thank you for this community which is centered in uh, the love of Christ. We pray that because of this moment that we share now, we would be drawn up into a sense of awe and wonder and curiosity, that we would feel ourselves infused with a spark by your spirit to live lives of love and sacrifice and self-donation for a world that needs it so, so desperately and for, frankly, our lives, which need it desperately. Fill us afresh as we come together and sit and ponder these words in this text. Amen. So this morning, I want to explore two of our four distinctives, and I'll put the four distinctives up for you to see, just so you can have a sense of like where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. Um, Our distinctives as a community are that we are biblical, that we're creedal, that we're sacramental, and that we're missional. Biblical, creedal, sacramental, and missional. And today I'm going to explore what it means that we as a community are biblical and creedal. Um, They are, in some ways, nicely wed uh, at the hip. And before I explore what each of these mean for our community, what I'd like to begin with is to ask the question, what's at stake in language like this? What's at stake in Um, defining distinctives as a community. And I'd like to begin by just simply pointing out the obvious, which is uh, we are a Christian church. And what that means is that we are a part of a tradition. We didn't start this community from scratch, even though we did plant this community from scratch. We didn't start a new religion. We didn't start a new faith tradition. Um, We find ourselves within a long line of ways of uh, rooted in Jesus 
of stories and rituals and symbols and practices that have been handed on that have diverse uh, series of interpretations and traditions within it, and we locate ourselves within that broader stream of a tradition. Um, and what's at stake when we talk about what it means to be biblical and what it means to be creedal is, it, to put it differently, what story are we living? Um, all of us are living out stories, and those stories uh, are often rooted in something, um, and they're told by someone. And there are not just people telling us these stories, but institutions that are taking stories, curating them, adding their voice to them, and then offering them to us. And this could be the institutions of Hollywood, it could be the institutions of uh, Madison Avenue, it could be um, the institutions of our faith traditions uh, or our families, but we all have these different incubators of stories that press in on our lives and shape us. And as a church community, this is our way of saying, well, here's the stories that we are going to be shaped by. These are the voices that we're going to turn the volume up on and give space in our lives to. Um, so what does it mean to be biblical, what does it mean to be creedal? Um, I'd like to begin with this idea of what it means to be biblical. And before I get into this, I want to acknowledge at the outset, for some, us having a distinctive as, of, of being biblical is uh, a, a great comfort. And for others, a distinctive of being biblical can be quite problematic or even triggering based on how you've experienced the Bible in the past or how people have used the Bible in your life. My relationship with the Bible started when I was a young child. Uh, my parents were Catholic and uh, my grandparents were like very faithful practitioners of the Catholic faith. My parents were sort of like nominal practitioners and sort of got us in and out for the sacraments, right? Like to get baptized and then we peaced out from the church. And then we came back for second, first communion and then after that uh, we peaced out once again. And uh, so I had this, this odd relationship with the church that was uh, part of our family, and then we would occasionally go, but it wasn't like a, a, a weekly feature of my life. And then we became uh, ingrained in this Baptist church, and it's a long story, but they had a great basketball program, and our family was a, a sucker for it, and uh, you know, we got assimilated into the community, and, and we went through a lot of stuff as a family, and, and our faith galvanized in this little Baptist community um, to the point where my parents would say they had a faith awakening, um, and I would say my commitment to Christ was galvanized in that context. And I remember being told that the Bible is our authority in that context. And this was very different, um, although I, I came to learn that the Bible is obviously a, a key authority in the Catholic Church and is engaged uh, richly and looked to reverently. Um, you know, my personal experience, probably because of how my parents engaged the tradition, was the, the Bible didn't have hardly any role in our life. Um, and frankly, we would say the creeds and the liturgy when we showed up to Catholic Church, but for us it was like stand up, sit down, we didn't know what was going on, and, uh, and, and my parents didn't really explain what was going on, so it was just really hard to connect to. But all of a sudden, we were being taught about the Bible and what to do with the Bible. Now I want you to ask a question. What image comes to your mind when you think of the phrase, reading my Bible? Reading the Bible or engaging the Bible? What is the image that comes to your mind, engaging the Bible? Can I get a little shout out here? Can you talk back to me just for a moment? What comes to your mind? Confusion? Um, that's really good and honest and also abstract. Is there anything concrete? I'm asking for an image that comes to your mind. I can't hear you. Can you hear me? What? Summer account? Okay, summer camp, cool. 
This is a failed experiment, two weeks in a row. All right, um, so summer camp, yeah, what else? A big, thick study Bible. Thank you for being loud. That was nice. Uh, yeah, a big, thick study Bible. Um, okay. So I think a lot of us, when we imagine the Bible or what it means to engage the Bible, we imagine, as you've suggested, a, a bound copy of the Bible, a printed version bound in front of us, usually in front of one person in a room somewhere, and they're reading it. That's often what we think about when we think of engaging the Bible. But what we have to acknowledge is this is like a really weird modern assumption when it comes to how we engage the Bible. For much of church's history, people could not engage the Bible that way. And certain parts around the world today, people can't engage the Bible that way. So how do people engage the Bible? Um, before the printing press, you didn't have as many volumes out there, right? Um, and they were quite expensive when you did. It took a lot of time to copy uh, from one to another and to collect them and bind them and then to uh, store them. In the earliest churches, only the richest and largest churches might have had one bound copy of the full Bible. And then the rest was what? Well, people had ways of engaging the Bible. They uh, recited it together when they gathered. They copied it. They memorized it. Uh, they assembled collections for Sunday readings, but rarely would they have access to the entire Bible in one sitting. And so the engagement of the Bible for much of the Christian church's history was communal, uh, it was uh, oral, and it was something that uh, was, was very meaningful and deeply engaging. And so I think it's just important just to acknowledge that, that like when we think of what it means as a church to be biblical, you might be going right away to, well, what's my relationship to the Bible? And I think the way we want to frame it is to say, what's our relationship to the Bible? How do we experience it together? How do we engage it? together. Um, I want to offer to you that what it means to be biblical for our community is to acknowledge that this is, a, we are a hearing community, a listening community. Um, one of the, the great privileges of my life was the chance to meet with uh, Pope Francis uh, in his private residence. Um, and, uh, you know, humble brag. But um, it was totally a Forrest Gump moment, like not, not any really tribute to, to me. Um, but here I was in, in the presence of Pope Francis, and I had the chance to ask him a question, and I simply said, like, if you were my age and a leader within the church and looking ahead, knowing what you know about our world now and looking to the future, what would you prioritize in your, relation, in your leadership? And he simply said, very quickly, uh, well, what I'm about to tell you is counterintuitive because we have this ministry of the word, right? The minister's job is to proclaim the word. Uh, it's what I'm doing right now. I'm speaking in a microphone to you and with you, and uh, he said, but the, the thing we need most today in the world is the ministry of the ear to recover what it means to listen and to hear, to create space for another voice in our lives other than our own. And when I think of what it means to be biblical as a community, I think very much this is the case that we are um, embracing the ministry of the ear. We are a people who listen for the voice of God in many different ways. But when we say we're biblical, we're saying we're going to look here for the voice of God. And when we look to the creed, we're going to say, we're going to look here for guidance about the story of Jesus Christ. When it comes to hearing, I want to just highlight a few things. We do expect to hear God's voice, but we also expect uh, to hear the whole story. We expect to hear together, and we expect to hear the voice of Christ. So I'm going to kind of move through those and what that means, I think, for us as a community. So first of all, we, we expect to hear God's voice. 
Um, the church has said over and over that in the Bible, we expect to hear God's voice. And the Bible uh, says that about itself. Um, but it is a slightly complicated claim, right? And not least, because if you open the book at random and you put your finger somewhere at a particular part that you aren't necessarily looking for context or anything, you just put your finger down and say, this is God's word for me, you're going to get in a lot of trouble very quickly. Um, there is this sense in which you can't read the Bible as just a simple statement of God says blank, and anywhere you open and put your finger, that's the, the fill in the blank. Um, but what will you find when you open the Bible and you put your finger down? You'll find, as we read and prayed today, a psalm, which is uh, poetry, prayer to God. You'll find history. You'll find family trees. You'll find a story about Jesus or maybe a story that Jesus told. You might even find a little complicated argument by St. Paul. And you quickly realize as you begin to read and open and engage the Bible that this isn't just a single sequence of instructions with God says to you, blank. It's a diverse library. It's a collection of books. The diversity of the Bible is as great as if you would have had within the same two covers, uh, maybe the complete volume of Kendrick Lamar's rap lyrics, um, congressional records from 1792, uh, the manuscript of Brené Brown's TED Talk on shame, uh, an introduction to Henry David Thoreau's Walden, uh, coupled with the poetry of E.E. E. Cummings and maybe a little fragment of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, all within the same two covers. Like that is the sort of cultural diversity, time span diversity, and different genre diversity that we find in our own Bible. So how can this all be addressed by God to us? That's a key question. And the simplest answer, which uh, theologian Rowan Williams offers, is that this is just what God wants us to hear. God wants us to hear this collection over time from different cultures and places, um, these stories and these laws and these texts and these, this poetry. Um, God wants us to hear it, and he wants us to hear it that way. Of course, Jewish, Jewish communities and Christian communities have wrestled with how can we call this diverse literature the word of the Lord. And surface meanings really aren't enough because they don't get us to why God wants us to hear it in the first place. It might be the word of the Lord, but what exactly, why exactly is it important that God wants us to know it? And here's where an analogy is kind of helpful. Jesus told parables, and I would put forth that in some ways, the Bible is like Jesus' parables. Jesus' parables have many characters. Uh, there's uh, a sense in which in Jesus' parables, there are multiple voices. And you might be asking at the end of it, uh, where am I now, having heard this story? Or you might ask the question, where, where am I in the story? The Bible is, you might say, God telling us a parable or a whole sequence of parables. And God is saying, in, in essence, this is how people heard me, this is how people saw me, this is how people responded to me. Like, this is the gift of God that I gave, or this is the gift I gave them, and this is the response they made. And where are you in this? Now, this is important. The Bible is a record of responses to God, yes. But some of those responses are shocking and they can be quite frankly difficult to accept. Consider for a moment uh, the story in the book of Joshua, 
where uh, the, the Israelites have come out of the thumb of empire and now they have the horizon of the promised land ahead of them. And what is their sense of mandate? What is their response to God's liberating work in their community? Well, they have a sense that they're to go into the land and show no mercy to the inhabitants. They commit what we would probably today call some form of genocide. And we, we wrestle with that. Of course, Jewish communities and Christian communities have wrestled with texts like that. And if we understand this uh, as just simply opening the Bible and say, God says blank, then we're left asking the question, well, does God condone, did God command genocide? Does God approve of that response? And if we understand that response is simply part of the story, then we can see that this is how people thought they were carrying out God's will at the time. And the point is to look at God, to look at yourself, and to ask, where am I in the story? Are you capable in the light of the Bible itself as a whole of responding more lovingly and more faithfully now than ancient Israel? I mean, think about people who look at our generation now from the future. There will be many things that they look at that are glaring blind spots to us, glaring absences. I mean, think of how we look 500 years ago in church history at people at the church's faithful response to the present. And in some ways, it was inspiring, and they got it right. And in other ways, we're like, did they not see? And you think of issues like slavery. So I, I say that to simply tee up that what it means to be biblical doesn't mean it's just copy and paste whatever you find, whatever little phrase or fragment of a story you find, and copy and paste it into your life as the word of God. We've always said, and the church has always said, that this needs to be interpreted. It needs to be filtered. It needs to be wrestled with. It needs to be read within the wider context of the whole story. And we need to ask the question, like we do with Jesus' parables, where do I fit in this? How will I respond to this? There are people in our community who hold different views of the Bible. Um, there are going to be people in our community uh, who think the Bible is perfect without error, infallible. The, the theological language is infallible, inerrant. There are going to be others who say, no, I think it's inspired and it's authoritative, but I'm not really sure about the error piece. And there are going to be others who are like, man, the way the Bible has been used in my life was so abusive. I don't even know if I can, I can't even read it right now without feeling shame or without feeling a sense of pain. And so I want to keep my faith intact and I want to engage my faith, but God, the Bible is such a hard text for me. This is the real feedback we have, I get from you in, our, in this one singular community. And what we want to say is that is fine. That diversity is fine in this community. For us to be biblical doesn't mean we're trying to get all of you to think and believe and embrace that the Bible is totally without error. And we're also, we don't have an agenda to say, hey guys, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just a story that's inspiring and nourishes our faith. Like, what we're trying to say and what I care about is how you engage the Bible, not necessarily what you believe about the Bible. I mean, what you believe about the Bible is important, and hopefully you'll be on an ongoing journey of development and re refining what you think about it. But what I'm more interested in is what are you doing with it? What place does it play in your actual life? How do you engage it? You could have a really high view of the Bible, quote-unquote high view, and it just sits on the shelf, unengaged. You could have a really, quote-unquote, low view of the Bible, and it is precious to you. You read it every day. You meditate on it. You pray it. It features prominently in your spirituality, and you listen to its voice well. 
And so I just want to sort of like deflate that nervous energy that has to get a, a sort of uh, homogenous position or belief around it in a community and say, we're fine. Go back and listen to the unity and diversity talk about our community. Those are core values, and there's a place for you no matter what you believe about the Bible. But as a community for us to be biblical, what it means is we're going to read it every week. We're going to speak from it. Someone's going to offer a reflection from it every week. We're going to pray it when we gather together through Lexio Divina and other forms of practice. We'll study it. We'll debate it. We'll discuss it. We'll pray it. All of that is true in our community because we hold the Bible in high regard. We treasure it. We love it. We believe we're hearing God's voice in it somehow. But the second piece is we believe we're hearing the whole story. And this is important because God isn't simply saying, here's a story. God's saying, here's your story. What we're saying is this is part of our identity. Um, when we read a story about Abraham, we're not just reading some random story. We're saying, no, this is actually how our faith tradition begins. Abraham's a father of our faith tradition. Abraham is, as we sang, some of us growing up in the church, is my father. But with the Bible as a whole, it matters that we're not just talking about an abstract case. We're talking about a story that unfolds in particular times, particular places, and it leads us toward here and now. We can locate ourselves based on how we understand the bigger story. And that's the importance of the Bible in our community. If I had to put an adjective to, to the phrase, uh, we are biblical, I'd say we're mystically biblical, biblical, meaning we believe that we can have this experiential, mystical encounter with God as we engage this text. And we can't control it, and sometimes it's really hard to define it. And some of us like the definitions because it gives us a sense of security about it. Some of us resist the definitions because we think we may be saying too much. But in either case, we engage it and we expect to experience God there. And we not only hear the whole story, but we hear together. And this is such an important point. We hear this word, this Bible, this, this, this sacred text together. Which is to say, we listen to the voices of the past, and we listen to each other as we come to this text. The past is important because there's a, a process, there's a history of interpretation here. We don't just get the Bible for our generation, right? In fact, we probably won't read the Bible well if we don't know how people read it then. And so there are some among us who devote a lot of time and energy to understanding how the church has read the Bible. Hopefully they're able to share that wisdom in bite-sized pieces that are accessible to us. And we take that wisdom and we implement it in our lives. But when it comes to hearing each other, this is maybe of the utmost importance for, for this moment, I think. Because what we often have done in church history is we have taken one reading of the Bible from one social location, largely a European or a, 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 an American perspective. It is truly largely male, largely within the US context, what we would call white, um, and educated. And we've taken that reading of the Bible and we've sort of elevated it and we've called that normal or we've called that good theology. And I think what we're finding now, and what, what is important for us as a church is to listen to other readings, um, to understand you know, whatever you, however you read the Bible is from a social location. And maybe the key theologians in your life or the key interpreters in your life um, are, are coming from a similar social location as you. And so a lot of how you read the Bible goes unquestioned. But the great gift of the church is to hear the Bible read and interpreted from other social locations. 
it's important to hear the Bible read and interpret it from people uh, who are brown and black in this world. As Lisa Sharon Harper reminds us, the Bible was written by brown people in a colonized context under the thumb of empire. And often, it's people in a similar social location who can actually read the Bible at a visceral level and connect with it and offer that reading as a gift to those of us who can't identify with that social location. We need to hear the Bible from the perspective of women and what it's like to be a woman as you hear these texts and these stories read and engaged. But frankly, we need to hear from any marginalized group because the Bible was largely written from the margins. And so it's really odd when we who sit in positions of center or power read the Bible the way we do and normalize it as the normal reading. Now listen, we need all of our readings, but all I'm suggesting is that we've often turned up the volume of one particular social location and ignored others. It was kind of shocking to people in the 70s and 80s when uh, the, the sort of deprived social location of Latin America was rendering readings, fresh readings of the Exodus that were exciting, but were also like, wait a minute, what? Uh, they became social critique and they made people who were at the center of power feel kind of uncomfortable. But we have to remember that while we often read ourselves as the good guys in the Bible, people who read the, the, the Bible from the margins often read it in ways that are surprising to us. It's weird that we who live in the wealthiest nation in the world, maybe in history, uh, one of the most powerful nations in the world and maybe in history, um, read the Exodus story as if we were the Israelites. Right? This is the great gift, by the way, of, uh, I mentioned Latin America, the liberation theological movement within, within Latin America, within the African-American community. This is one of the great gifts of the black reading of the Bible in the context of slavery, asking way different questions than the slave owners were asking of the text and of the tradition. And you know what it yielded? A fruitful, faithful response that we have so much to learn from even today. That's why we have Black History Month. It's why right now I think a church like ours that isn't necessarily connected to a denomination needs to make disproportionate space for other readings. It's why when I preach, I try not to quote dead white guys all the time. And try, if I could, it, we're going to figure it out, all right? We don't know the whole screen thing in here. We project words on the wall. That works. But images and video don't exactly work. But I would love to show the faces of the people that I quote so you can get a sense of the voices that we're listening to as we listen to the Bible. Does that make sense? When we listen to the Bible, we listen to it together, and we're better for it. We're not less. We're not diminished by it. So we hear it together. And then we not only hear it together, but we hear it, we hear Christ in it. And that's what makes us a Christian church. When we look at the Bible, we read it through the lens of Christ, which is to say, we look to Jesus and we say, here's the most profound, the most beautiful, the, the most faithful expression of who God is in the world. And we read the whole story through the lens of that story. We read the whole story through the lens of that life. And where we find tension, which inevitably, I mean, if you, you just read church history and how the Bible is interpreted, you, you inevitably get to the tensions, right, between the, the different bits of the Bible. Our default as a community is to say, well, what did Jesus have to say about that? And that's going to be our starting point of reconciliation. And we might have different ways to reconcile, but Jesus is the starting point. And this is where we move to the creed. Because what the creed does is it gives us a way to talk about the story of Jesus. It gives us guide rails 
for what the church has said about the story of Jesus that are like a, a compass for us. It tells us what's up and what's down, and if we're going off the path too far as we interpret and read the Bible. The creed is not just, uh, I know some of you, I don't know how you think of the creed. You think of the Bible maybe as, as a, a book opened in front of an individual. I'd rather you think of it as a collective text, hearing it together, processing, discerning together. But when it comes to the creed, how do you think of it? Um, if you came up in a tradition that didn't, didn't recite the creed or didn't make a big deal of the creed, then uh, to you it might seem like a, a little bit of a, a box to put on you that feels a little weird. Some of you, it was a familiar thing you said in worship every Sunday, and maybe you said it at your baptism. When it comes to the creed, I want to give you a little window into how it rose into being, especially I'll start with the Apostles' Creed, uh, because our church is rooted theologically in the, Nic in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as a sort of baseline of the, the, the simplest, most essential form of the Christian faith. And it didn't start as people getting together and saying, okay, theoretically, what, what, what do Christians believe? Um, it was a, almost a part of guerrilla theater. And by that I mean the church was underground. It was, you know, like in the dark, meeting at off hours under the heat of persecution. And for them to gather, to worship, to come to a table like this, it was high stakes. If you were allowed at this table, it's because they knew your confession was genuine. They knew your sense of commitment was real. And you had to go through a whole series of processes to get to that table. And you know what one of them was? Baptism. And baptism was a preparation. You, you prepared for it, you, uh, sometimes up to three years, to be baptized. And once you were baptized, you entered into this community. I want to give you a sense of how the creed emerged, the Apostles' Creed, by telling a little bit of a story. It's fiction, but it's based on uh, a, a text called the Apostolic Tradition, which is one of the earliest texts we have on worship. On the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers has stayed up all night in the vigil of prayer, of scripture reading, and of instruction. And the most important moment of, the, moment of their lives is fast approaching. For years, they've been preparing for this day, and when the rooster crows at dawn, they're led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove their clothes. Women let down their hair, remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan. They are anointed with oil, and they are led into the water. Then they're asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And they reply, I believe. And they're plunged down into the water, and they're raised up again. And they're asked a second question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, the Mary the Virgin, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead, buried, rose on the third day, alive from the dead, ascended into the heavens, sits at the right hand of the Father, will come again to judge the living and the dead, and again they confess, I believe. And then a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And a third time they cry, I believe. And after that third time, they're immersed once again. And when they emerge from the water, they're again anointed with oil, and they're clothed, and they're blessed, and they're led into the assembly of faith, where they will take the Eucharist meal for the first time. And finally, they're sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in their faith. The creed wasn't just an academic exercise. The creed was 
educational. It was preparing them for that moment that I just explained. But it was also sacramental. It was spoken and declared at their baptism as a, as a commitment, as a way to interpret the world and to understand the story of Jesus Christ. It was informative and it was performative. And so when we talk about our community as creedal, I want us to think of like being generously creedal. Like we're taking this essential strand of the faith and saying, we're not just making this stuff up. Like we're, it's not just a me and my Bible kind of faith. Like we're part of a Christian tradition that has said certain things about the story of Jesus. And we hold to those certain things. We ping off of those certain things. That doesn't mean we always fall lock, you know, in line with them at, at, with ease. Sometimes we wrestle with them and we're in tension with them. But we, we are related to them. As a Christian church, we're creedal because that's our reference point. That's our dialogue partner. That's what we're receiving and handing on with our voice added to it. Only our voice is just a little tiny piece of that big story. And as a community, to be biblical and creedal means we're turning up the volume of those voices. The creed helps us interpret the Bible. It helps us not go off the, the beaten path too far. The creed tells us that God is Trinity, which is the foundation of our faith. It gives us this, the basic axioms of what we're saying when we talk about the life of Jesus. And here's why I say it's generous for us. For us, you might come into this space and you might be like, I, the creed's kind of cool, but like, I don't really know what I think about this little piece or that little piece. And that is not a hurdle for this community. Like, we are generously creedal, meaning you might come here and wrestle with parts of it. We have all the patience in the world for that. Like, th that's not a standard of participation in the community, but it is the, uh, an anchor point for this community. At the same time, there are little phrases in the community that are wonderfully centrist and generous. For instance, Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, our creeds tell us. But the creeds don't say exactly what that means. And over the course of the church history, some people have come to different conclusions. Um, and I know all of you are just like so animated by atonement theories. That's like your, your main thing in life. But just know there's multiple. And some of you in here are like penal substitutionary uh, atonement people. Any in the house? I don't know. What? What? Uh, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Others of you are Christus Victor. You love that interpretation of, uh, of, of the death of Christ and what it means for the world and for our lives. Others of you are like, I just think it's, you know, like I have a simple understanding of the death. I don't know what the tag is. So like, you know, you fill in the blank or put me in the category. But what I'm just saying is the generously creedal means we hold as a community that Christ died for our sins. And then we have space for people to wrestle with what does that mean? to learn from history, to test it in this world and in our lives and to see what fruit comes of it. The, the, the text tells us, or the creed tells us, that the reality, is, uh, the reality of judgment, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. But it doesn't tell us exactly how that plays out. And you might be aware there's different theories out there about uh, the afterlife. Are you aware of that? Like different theories around hell or different theories around heaven. And what we would say as a community is, hey, bring your full self, bring your understandings, as we said last week, bring your understandings to this community and be open to each other to wrestle and to engage and debate the better you know each other. That's fine. But as a community, our anchor point is Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And that's what we're tethered to and what we ping off of. So biblical and creedal are guide, guide rails for our community 
that are meant to anchor us and also are generous and free. We don't want to create a community of coercion where there's weird pressure to like fall in line with this and fall in line with that out of social pressure. We want to just hold up the Bible, engage it centrally, and, and feature it prominently, and hopefully we'll be drawn to its beauty, to its intrinsic authority. And hopefully we'll hold up the creeds, and as we understand it and get educated around it, and it serves as a guide to us, it'll feel like good news. It'll feel, you know, we come to this Wednesday night thing this week with Aaron's leading. We're doing that because the creed isn't an academic exercise. It is meant to en enhance our sense of trust in God and trust in the story of Christ. And so I leave that with you, and I leave you with the question, what does it mean for you to engage the Bible? What is your level of engagement now, and how can you bring your understandings and your experience of the Bible and show up in this community in a way that has integrity, but also puts you on a growth journey? And what's your relationship to the creed? How do you connect with the assertions of this, the sort of like what the church has said is an essential assertion of the faith? And that's not a pressure play. That's just to say, like, uh, well, how are you engaging it? How are you engaging that story of Christ that we're told through the creeds? And hopefully as we move forward into our future, we'll be able to be creative and we'll be able to be curious and take risks and do a whole bunch of cool things that a free church can do. But we're tethered in these ways. This is our reference point. Some of you, that's encouraging. Some of you are like, all right, I can tolerate it. But we move together. Whether we're from the left or the right, whether we're from Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Anglican or uh, Pentecostal, third wave, charismatic movement, like whatever it is that you come from, we hold that intention together as we engage the Bible and the creed. And I think that's beautiful. So let me say a quick prayer for us and we'll come to the table together. God, we thank you for this community where uh, we are rooted in a beautiful tradition rooted in the life and story of Christ, and we pray that your spirit would make that tradition come alive in us, that story come alive in us. And I pray for every person in this room that there'd be a sense of a growth in engagement with the Bible, a growth in engagement with the faith that we've received, and that it would translate into something truly beautiful in this city, truly good, that we could offer as a gift in a divided and torn world. We pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church podcast. Trinity Grace is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you'd like to support us, please text TGC Downtown to 77977. That's TGC Downtown to 77977. Or visit our website, tgcdowntown.com. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May God's face shine upon you. And may you be filled with peace, hope, and love.